about the nature of God. So I think that's kind of the fruit of a pluralistic, relativistic society. Just don't know, not sure, can't be known. Um, so insecurity is uh, what you get in the end. So our culture is consumed with security, consumed with peace of mind that comes with the assurance of these things. We spend millions of dollars, billions of dollars, countless resources trying to get it. So we're, we're trying to get at answers in every aspect of our life, but it, the truth of the matter is, is all we end up with more questions. Right? We're looking for answers, but what we find is more questions. And then, then you get into the silly philosophical stuff that goes on in our world today. It's not about the answers. It's about asking the questions. That's where we find meaning. Just asking the questions. Engaging in the dialogue about such things. That's where we find meaning. But we all know that in the end, when you think like that, you still lay in bed at night without any sense of security. Any sense of assurance. Questions in and of themselves don't provide answers. And we crave answers to our deepest questions. Questions regarding our security. Speaking of questions regarding security, today our passage uh, does exactly that. Paul asks questions. Six questions. And they're all about security. He's asking questions at the end of this section. We've been in Romans now uh, for really the better part of this year, but our particular section that we're in has been Romans 5 through 8 since the beginning of March. So if you've been with us for any time period, you know that in the fall we did Romans 1 through 4, and now in the spring we've been walking through Romans 5 through 8. And here we are in this last passage, this conclusive passage in Romans chapter 8, which kind of brings things to a, a climactic ending where he asks six questions about the implications, the impact of the gospel that Paul has kind of articulated over the last four chapters. So now we have questions, six questions about security, about assurance. And so the question we're asking this morning which Paul is answering and addressing for us, is that for Christ's people, we're speaking directly to the people of God, people who know and trust in Christ for salvation. For those people, is security hard to find? Let's turn to Romans 8, verses 31 through 38. Uh, I'm sorry, through 39, and let's see what he says. Verse 31, What then shall we say to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Somebody say it again. Amen. If there was ever a passage you didn't need to preach, you just walk off the stage. It feels like this is the one. Question one. We're going through six questions. And you all are like, oh no, he has six points. We're dead. Six questions. What shall we say to these things. First question. What shall we say to these things? Well, what are these things? Again, we're coming to the end of an argument here. A conclusion. And he's saying, what shall we say to these things? Well, surely he's talking about what he has just said. And last week we talked about the fact that God will finish the salvation that he started in us. If you remember, Romans 8, 29 and 30 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? It means that when God starts salvation in you, God finishes it. What shall we say to that truth? What shall we say? What conclusion shall we draw from the fact that if God has started salvation in us, He will surely finish it. If He foreknew you, one day He will glorify you. What shall we say to these things? But not only that, 828 says... This, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So we heard that we have assurance that God is working all things for our good. What shall we say? What conclusion shall we draw from the fact that He finishes the salvation that He starts and that He's working out sovereignly every circumstance in our life, for good. What do we conclude from that? Well, not only that. We heard that likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That is, we heard that we have a constant help in the Holy Spirit who's groaning and interceding for us. What are we to conclude? What shall we say to the fact that we have the Spirit of God living inside of us, helping us, constantly. What conclusions should we draw from that this morning? What about this? Going back to verse 18, which really starts this last section. 
that the glory that we anticipate has no comparison to the present struggle and suffering that we face. That our union with Christ means, yes, we will be united to Him in His suffering. But our union with Christ also means that we indeed will experience an incomparable glory. What shall we say to these things? What conclusions shall we draw from that truth? Not only that, but you go all the way back to 323. The basis of such blessings that we have, all the way back to the work of Christ, His death on the cross, the righteousness that is revealed from heaven in that perfect work, the foundational event that makes all these blessings possible, that we're justified, we're declared righteous in His sight on the basis of Christ's work, which five chapter one says it means that we have peace with God, that we're no longer living at enmity with the living God, that our sin has been dealt with, that we have been saved by grace through faith. What about 6.5? That we've been united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. What do we can conclude to conclude on that note? What are we to do with the fact that we have we've been dead to sin, verse 6.11? That we're no longer alive to sin, but we're dead to sin. And we're alive to God. What are we to do with the fact that 7.6 says that we have been set free from the law? That we're no longer subject to slavery to the law. What are we to do with that? What are we to do with the fact, verse 724 says, who's going to deliver me from the flesh in this struggle against sin? That thanks be to God that it's Jesus Christ our Lord. What are we to do with that? What are we to do with the fact that 8.1 says that we are free from all condemnation in the courtroom of God? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What are we to do with the fact that all of that means that we have been made sons and daughters of the living God and co-heirs of God with Christ? What are we to do with all of this? You're like, man, he's, there's a lot he's covering today. I want you to see that there's a lot of grace and grace goodness in the robust gospel that we preach that we are not ashamed one iota of the gospel when paul talks about not being ashamed of the gospel in 118 he's saying man we got something good here something incomparably good and valuable nothing can compare to the goodness of this of what god has done in jesus christ what shall we say to these things That's these things. I'm a little excited today. Game two tonight. You know, redemption potentially. No, I'm excited about this gospel. This is not manufactured or fabricated. The frustrating thing is I don't live in a constant conscious awareness of this. Raise your hand if you do not live, I just want to humbly admit, that you do not live in a conscious, constant awareness of the robust nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My hand is wide up. You know, I'm complaining because I got a contact stuck in the corner of my eye. Listen, that's life. 
those aren't real problems. Man, this is good. This is real. This is wonderful. And I wonder if half the issues that we face and some of the despondency that we experience and some of the lack of perspective is because we really have a superficial understanding of these things. You wonder why we, we're wrestling and struggling with life because we have basically bought a simple message that God loves me and I'm going to heaven someday. Yes, but it is so much more than that. And I am tirelessly committed to this congregation coming to a fuller understanding of these things. What are we to say to these things? Simply put, God is for us. I want you to hear that today. God is for us. Now that doesn't mean it's all about you. You see, God is for God. He's all about his glory. But in pursuing his own glory, he's also been pursuing the good of his people. God is for us. That's what we conclude to these things. When all of the world seems to be coming against us, we stand in assurance and confidence that God is for us. That's what we say to these things. God is for us, his people. It leads us to question two. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's rhetorical. The answer is no one. God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. On the basis of this. You know, we see a world around us. We experience Monday through Saturday, 9 to 5, just in the, in the everyday situations of our lives. We can see a world that seems to be out to get us. Sometimes we may even conclude that, that God is out to get us. That God is against us. That if we're facing this struggle or suffering or opposition in our experience, that God must be against us. God must not be for us. You know, it's illnesses that people experience. You know, other people come against us, like our boss or, or even our spouse or a neighbor that, that, that's, that's just driving us crazy. We look at CNN and, and Fox, and we, well, everyone's against us. We don't trust Fox and we don't trust CNN. They're all out to get us. Advertisements are out to get us. They want our money. They want to take something from us. We see opposing nations that are out to get us. They're against us. We see ISIS out there. We, we see the government, the IRS. I mean, April just passed. Man, if there's ever a day where you feel like everything's out to get you, it's when you fill out your 1040. And I tell you, man, if there's anybody that you feel like sometimes is out to get you, and a lot of you young couples have been seeking out, uh, trying to find a home, and trying to get with a bank, and you realize, man, you pretty much make it impossible for me to borrow money from you. It's, you feel like the bank is just simply out to get you. They make you jump through all these hoops, you jump through them all, and then they give you ten more hoops. They're trying to make it difficult for you. Life can feel like, at least on the surface, that it, everybody's out to get you. Everyone's against you, right? And then you start to think about the spiritual realm, and you think about the fact that, yes, okay, sin is against me. Satan is against me. Death is against me. Life is against me. And then you come to this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? That really, when you look below the surface and see our real enemy, Satan, sin, and death... 
you come to the realization that God has dealt with all that is substantively against us. He's dealt with it. He's taken care of it in Jesus Christ. We know that Romans 1.18 says he even dealt with the wrath that was against us in our sin. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Right? There's actually a greater against that we often ignore. And that is the fact that God is against us in our unrighteousness and in our sin. But we see that in Jesus Christ, he's dealt with that. Through Christ's work on the cross, he has dealt with the most significant thing that would ever be against us. He dealt with his own uh, wrath, bearing it, taking upon himself. And so if God has dealt with that, what possibly can we say would be against us now? If God is for us, who can be against us? That is the wonderful truth that is found in the answer. That the answer is no one. No one can successfully be against us. Nothing can successfully uh, oppose us in such a way to do us harm. That Christ's people live with assurance that God is for them. It's without question. If God is for us, who should be against us? What is the answer? No one. For Christ's people, assurance that God is for them is without question. It is not to be questioned. God is for you. Question three. Really, it starts with a reality which leads into a question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, comma, question, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not graciously give us all things? The implied answer, the rhetorical answer is this. God will graciously give us all things. Such assurance for the Christian. On what basis can we believe the answer that God will graciously give us all things? Well, he did not spare his own son. Did you hear that? God did not spare his son for Christ's people. God gave up his son. Not because we deserved it, but because it was according to his purposes to sufficiently save those people. He did not withhold the thing that was most valuable to him. Fathers, mothers, could you even conceive of giving up your child? Is there anything more valuable to you in this life than your child? Could you conceive of sparing your child for someone else? I'm just going to speak from a fleshly, human, logical perspective on my end. I cannot conceive of doing so. It's not in my DNA to conceive of sparing my son, of giving up my children for anyone else. And the love of God did not spare his own son but gave up his son willingly voluntarily graciously gave up his son 
for us. He's willing to give up his son. Surely, he's willing to give us all things that come with his son. Right? It's inherently included. When God gave up his son for us, and God gave his son to us, inherently included in that gift where all things, there's that phrase again, will he not give us all things graciously? Right? It's, it'd be silly for uh, my, one of my children, got to stay gender neutral, it'd be silly if one of my children, upon giving them a bike at Christmas, saying to me, Dad, thanks for the bike, but can I also have the wheel? And I would say, dude, or honey, I gave you the bike. The wheel is inherently included with the bike. Or if I took my wife out to dinner and I said, I want to buy you dinner tonight. And she says, okay, well, can I have the salad with the dinner? I would say, Doreen, please understand. The salad is inherently included with the offer of the dinner. It's just part of it. It comes with it. And so what he is saying here, arguing from the greater to the lesser, is that if I'm willing to give you my son, I'm not going to withhold any grace or blessing from you. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, will he not give us all things that are inherently included? You see, in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing is inherently included in his gift of Jesus Christ. And some of us on the surface are looking for peace. We're looking for security. We're looking for the removal of shame and guilt. We're looking for a purpose in our lives. We're looking for connection. We're looking for acceptance. We're chasing all these things. And those things are, are, are wired into our DNA to want those things. But understand this, what you're really chasing is the source of those things. If you want those things, you need to pursue Jesus. You need to see him as the source of all of those things. And not just the source so that you can get those things. But rather, those things are in Christ. Will he not give us all things with him? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. He will give us all things. They're inherently included. So don't question whether or not all those things uh, that are necessary for salvation, don't question whether or not God will give them to you. He didn't spare His Son. He'll give you all that is necessary. And so for Christ's people, assurance of God's gracious provision is without question. It's without question. The next two really come together as one, uh, but two questions nonetheless. Question four, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Question five, who is to condemn? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Kind of two questions that are different, but yet come together to communicate one 
real truth. So the question number four, who shall bring a charge against God elect? Tell me. No one. No one. On what basis can we say no one can bring a charge against God's elect? He tells us, it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. You can imagine a courtroom where the accuser is there pointing out all the errors, bringing an arraignment against you, reading the charges that have been brought against you. You can imagine that. Satan is attempting to bring a charge. But it's no real substantive charge. Because as God hears the charges and you hear them, you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, I did that. I'm in deep trouble. Guilty. That may be your assumption. But as we understand the work and gift of justification, that really what justification is, it's a not guilty verdict in God's courtroom because another righteousness, not your own, Another righteousness has been applied to you by grace through faith. And so God has said, I have already applied the righteousness of my son Jesus Christ to this person, therefore not guilty. An unchanging verdict, not guilty. And so for Christ's people, those who know him and trust him, the answer, the verdict is always not guilty. And that verdict cannot be overturned. It's unchanging. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Against Christ's people? No one. It's God who justifies. And so if God has justified us, there is no charge that can be brought to us. For righteous in His sight, who can say anything different? The case is closed. It's not to be reopened. It's not to be reexamined. It's not to be reconsidered. God's gavel has been laid down. And if you know and trust in Christ, you are not guilty in God's courtroom. And so if you're here today questioning your standing before God, think again. Question again whether or not that is there, for His declaration of your righteousness in Christ is without question. Who is to condemn? We already said, Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who is to condemn, Renovation Church? No one. No one is to condemn. How can we say that no one is to condemn? Well, basis, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who took upon all the condemnation we deserve because of our sin. That's something that we've been talking about for six months. We sing of this. Matt Boswell's song, In my place he stood condemned. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become His righteousness. In my place, He stood condemned. Jesus Christ is the one that died. You don't have to die 
under the condemnation of the law. Christ died in condemnation for you already. And so you no longer live under the condemnation of the law. In fact, he, was, he did not just die. He was raised from the dead, vindicating his work. He sits at the right hand of God. And now, rather than condemning you, he's interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's mediating a new covenant for you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The opposite, acceptance. So that's what I want you to see in these first five questions. That these questions, they all come together and they say, for Christ's people, assurance of a righteous standing before God is without question. It's without question. He's asking the questions so that you stop questioning. For those who are Christ's people, of course. And so Christ's people live with this unquestionable assurance of an uncondemnable standing before God. That is the gift offered to you in the gospel. What shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? How do we know God is for us? Because nothing can question or change our uncondemnable standing before God. You may be here asking, does God accept me in His presence? Based on what I've done this week, does He really look at me with favor? And if you have placed your trust in Christ, the answer is and will always be absolutely yes, without question. Without question, unquestionable assurance of an uncondemnable standing before God. What grace. What grace. Not only that, question six. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he expands on the question. He says, Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, the emphatic answer to the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will these circumstances separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? No. It's emphatic. Certainly not. Absolutely not. On the contrary. Think again. Wake up to the reality of what God has done for you. No one, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Emphatic. Don't miss the emphasis. It's not a silent, like, uh, uh, no. It's a no way, man. No way. Nothing. It's strong. It's emphatic. It's passionate. It's climactic. Nothing, no one can separate you from the love of God that is given to you in Christ Jesus. In fact, in all these things, in all the suffering. In all the turmoil, in all the distress, in all the pressure 
that we face in this life, everything that comes against us, everything that seems to call into question the love of God. Man, I'm going through this. God must not love me. God must be punishing me for my sin. Raise your hand if you've ever thought that or concluded that. No. In all these things, actually, we're more than conquerors. We're supremely victorious. We put a beat down on sin, Satan, and death in these things. Not in and of ourselves course, but through him who loved us. The irony of that, right? No, These things seem to separate us or call into question God's love for us. No, 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 no. And all these things were supremely victorious and actually experiencing and being united with an unbreakable bond with the love of Christ. That's what's astounding to us in the moments where we are actually questioning god's love for us or his favor toward us it's actually the moments because we're united to christ in his suffering that we're expecting to experience pressure and opposition in our walk with god it's actually in these things that the love of christ is evident that the love of christ is made manifest as we gain victory in these things over these things, it shows that He loves us and that our connection to His love is unbreakable. It's unchanging, inseparable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All these experience, all they do is put on display and manifest this love that we are eternally bound to. That is a message that you will never hear in the world, but that our gospel proclaims to those who walk in turmoil and struggle. Assurance. It's without question for us as the people of God. It's without question. For Christ's people, assurance of an inseparable connection to His love is without question. Without question. And I fear that some of us here today may suffer from a false sense of security. You think you're doing okay. I'm good. Again, you live in a pluralistic, relativistic society. You take an inventory of your life, going to work, you're mowing your lawn, pretty decent person. So God will accept me. Right? I'm decent 51% of the time. God loves me, right? False sense of security. I think we struggle with that. Paul's made it clear in Romans 1-8 through that on the basis of our merit and our works, we're never accepted in the sight of God. That that's actually the basis of our condemnation. To think of ourselves relative to other people and the things that we do or don't do. But I wonder if here today, that on the other side of the equation, that there are some of you here today that are in Jesus Christ, and that you have not a false sense of security, but a false sense of insecurity, and that it plagues you, 
and that it follows you around like a gnat and you can't get rid of it and it brings you into despair and despondency and your security level goes, goes down and down and down because you know in your own strength you continue to struggle and sin and fail. And that really your measurement is between not just you and other people, but you're measuring yourself up to the righteousness of God and you feel the overwhelming weight of His holiness. And you live in shame and guilt and self-condemnation. And really the point of this whole passage is to give you assurance as you walk through difficulty and face pressure in this life. It's to put an end to your questions about whether or not you stand before God accepted. It's to put an end to your questions about whether or not God loves you. He does. He loves you. Seems so basic. But I think we question that, which is most basic and fundamental to salvation. Is that God loves you in Jesus Christ. He's given His Son up for you. Nothing can separate you from all of the grace and benefits that come from that love being applied to you by the power and indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit. Inseparably connected to the love of God. Unquestionable standing in righteousness. So we asked the question as we started, is security too hard to find for Christ's people? But I'm here to tell you that security for Christ's people is impossible to lose. You can't lose it. It's inherent. It's, it's part of the salvation that you have. Security in your standing before God. Love. Inseparable connection to His love. It's impossible to lose once you receive it. Say, is it too hard to find? I'm telling you, if you know truly have been united to Jesus Christ, it cannot be lost. So don't question it. Enjoy it. Live according to it. Live according to it. For Christ's people, assurance is without question. It's without question. That's the irony of the passage. All these questions. But really, they're to lead you to answers. To stop asking questions. And to start living in the assurance that the gospel provides. Only the gospel provides. What shall we say to these things? For Christ's people. Assurance. Of love. And of righteousness. Without question. Signed. Sealed. Delivered. But for others. Who are not Christ's people. Maybe for the first time, you need to start asking some pretty deep questions about your relationship with God. Christians, stop asking questions about your standing and the love of God for you. But if you do not know Christ, start asking those questions. Because the world would not have you thinking about those things. 24-7 reality of your life, you will find easy ways to escape and evade the ultimate questions of life. How do I stand before God? And am I a recipient of His blessing and His love? If you reject that or you ignore that, you have no assurance. You have no assurance. You have no assurance of righteousness. No assurance of aid and assistance as you face the difficult realities of this life. You have no assurance of the love of God. Let me be very clear about that. This is an evangelistic appeal. Trust in Christ 
Turn to the answer of every spiritual question. Stop ignoring it. Stop making excuses. Stop measuring yourself up to the murderer you see on the news. Start asking these questions. And know that every one of these questions is answered in Christ. I plead that you would turn to Him today and forevermore so that you would be assured of your standing and Christ's love. But for the Christian, assurance is without question. Amen? I did all I could to withhold my excitement and to shorten the message. You're welcome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Romans 1 through 8. Thank you for Romans 5 through 8. Thank you for Romans 8 and the climax. All these questions. Thank you for questioning us. And thank you all the more for reassuring us that because of Christ and on the basis of grace, as we have embraced him with total reliance, we as Christ's people live in full assurance of our righteousness and our acceptance and of a love that will not let us go. All the praise and glory to you. Amen. Let's stand and respond to that.